Camille Baker. You're listening to the first episode of Word, a podcast I've been working on with my friend Jessica Hundall about race in Canada. I'm a recent grad of the Religious Studies program at McGill University in Montreal, where Jessica is completing her BA in Philosophy, Canadian Studies, and Religion. In this first episode, we talk to Rachel Zellers about the difficulties young people of color face in trying to navigate white spaces like McGill. Rachel is an attorney and PhD candidate in the Department of Integrated Studies and Education. So my name is Rachel Zellers, and I'm a... I guess a fourth year PhD student at McGill. My research focuses on the history of public schooling in Canada with um, like a specific focus on black migration and the first experiences that large groups of black people fleeing the United States, crossing the border into Canada had in our uh, public schooling system. That migration period coincided with the creation of our public schools, generally speaking. And I'm really interested in notions of, of freedom and disappointment that occurred through that history. The most important thing for me in this work, I mean, I love the details of it, but the most important thing for me is thinking about how this history changes the narrative that Canada holds out about itself, um, particularly in its relationship with black people and the history of black people in this place. I'm really interested in subverting that narrative. There were two first impressions I had of McGill. Oh my God, this place sucks in ways that I just can't even fully like put into words yet. And the second impression that I had was, wow, there's nothing here in my department, education, that I really want to learn. Like there's not not a single class that deals with, um, I don't know, critical race theory and education, which is like a 30-year-old discipline in the United States, right? Um, there's nothing in my syllabus that looks at, you know, the histories of black learners in Canada and the United States. Um, that looks at the important relationship between how black people got here and how education was such a formative part of our identities in this place. There was nothing that looked like me. And it was the first time I had ever been, have ever been in a learning space where um, I realized that I just wasn't present. Like my life, my experiences, and the things that I was most interested in were not present. That was my first term at McGill as a master's student. And after that first term, I went to complain to my department chair. I'd had a really negative experience with a professor who um, just had terrible pedagogical practices. And when challenged about her very white syllabus, like chose to be punitive in her response to me and you know, wanted to give me a C in the class, which is fine if I deserve it. Like I'm cool, right? But I knew I didn't deserve it. So I went to talk to my department chair and I said, you know, I, this is who I am. I have been in, you know, I've been, at, I've been in academia my entire life and this department sucks. And she said, well, what do you think it would take to make this department better? I said, well, there's a number of things. Um, you need some black folks teaching here. You need, you know, more profs in the classroom. And she said, well, that's not something that I can fix immediately. What else? And I said, just courses. 
I said, you know, you know, critical race theory in education has been, you know, it's an old discipline. It's, it's something that's really important for all educators and multicultural education is very distinct, both in theory and in practice from critical race theory. I said, why doesn't this department even offer a course, a basic course in that? And she said, well, why don't you create it? And I said, I absolutely will. And so I spent the summer creating this syllabus. And then I came back, and she gave me permission to create it as a seminar and lead it for two years in my department. You know, I have to just name Dr. Weiner for a moment, because had I not had that experience, I would not be at McGill. The most important thing that she taught me, wow, this is kind of deep. The most important thing that she taught me is that you have a right to insist upon like your shit. You have a right to insist upon learning what you need to learn. And you have a right to say, it's not here. I want to create it. Like you have that right. And what she also did was just affirmed my humanity, right? Because if she had told me, no, stop being a troublemaker, you know, um, I could, not only would I not be at McGill, but I would have left, left that institution, um, I don't know, maybe a very different person, you know. So that experience at McGill has shown me, you know, what's possible, also what's not possible, the limitations of that university, which I'm not at all realist, unrealistic about, but it's taught me to just ask and say, yo, mm -hmm. this is terrible, can I do this? You know, and what I found over the last four years, like if you come in the door being critical, as long as you come in the door with something pragmatic, like the university will, they'll shift a little bit with you. You know, it's a tricky relationship. But I think so many of us, look, that's the unique thing about growing up and being black or racialized in Canada. So many of us don't grow up in cultural communities where we're surrounded by people whose very existence teaches you um, that you matter, that you have a right, and that of course you have to insist upon like the very best for yourself. I think so many, uh, so few of us grow up uniquely situated in those kinds of environments that by the time we come to McGill, it's just overwhelming. Because you know the whiteness of that space is just overwhelming. I think it's so important that you say that you went to the department chair and she, really helped you out and you really thought the most important thing you learned was just to ask or even the fact that you had the confidence to go and say I I've been in academia for so long and I know this isn't right how would that transfer over to like an undergraduate student like how do they deal with that so here's the deal let me just speak about this very openly so a number of years ago there was a very organized and brilliant group of BSN students who wrote a 30 page document finely detailed and proposed to the university to create a black studies and African studies department that was focused on black Canadian history. And the students, you know, who I won't name, but I know these students, some of these students now, a very brilliant group of students, worked for three years to develop this 30-page proposal, sought the consultation of other professors on and off campus, as well as scholars throughout the nation. Now, here's what happened. They handed this 30-page proposal into the university in their senior year, mm -hmm. and the university was just waiting for them to graduate so that the next group of BSN students could come on in who 
may not know about this pro proposal, who weren't as organized as the kids, you know, in the years previous, and they threw that shit to the side. That's what they did, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, in our organizing, we, we have to share these stories as well, and we have to just get smarter. We have to think about how to mobilize differently. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to start. We have to start. We have to start. We have to insist upon our right to have what we need in that space. But also we have to step through the door knowing what we need, right? Well, I guess to continue on that, I guess what, what value do you put on, I guess, a PhD mm -hmm. at an institution like McGill? Or what importance does it have to you? Why pursue it? Oh, that's a great question. And um, I had a... Uh, an argument with a friend on Sunday about this very question, um, who feels that, you know, universities are just spaces that could produce these sort of self-ejaculatory scholars who don't work in the re real world and, you know, are just dodos, right? And um, for her, activism is really important and it's the most important thing. And anyway, we had this disagreement and um, I always step away from those conversations feeling a bit unnerved because um, my feeling is that you step into those conversations um, not acknowledging how privilege works in the world. So, you know, I mean, there's so many levels we could have this conversation on. I'll choose, you know, the, like the point of privilege and the point of knowledge production, which are the most important to me. So, you know, this world, when I applied to Yale, as a high school do, student, I'll never forget, there was a two-page attachment that had last names on it. And as part of your application, you were to read through that list and check every family name that fell in your family tree, right? This is Those application. Are legacy names. And so what I learned really quickly, and I knew before that point, is that certain people in this world gain access to elite institutions and elite spaces because of their stock, because of their pedigree, and what names quite literally fall within their family tree. So if your last name was like Bush or Rockefeller or Reagan, like, you know, all of these presidential names, Jefferson, I think, was on there too, um, you were granted automatic admission to the university, Yale which is a highly competitive, selective university. And so your pedigree, your door is open by your mere existence. For black kids like me who are first generation, you know, college goers, you know, no one in my family, now I have cousins who've gone to college, but I was the first in my family to go to college. And certainly in my family, on the black and white side, I am the only kid, person, human being in my family who's got a JD, an MA, a BA, BA and will soon have a PhD, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you come out of those families, it's not enough to say the university system is just a corporation and it sucks, right? Mm -hmm. Because it communicates to me, like, when will you, then you, you really can't 
have an understanding of how power and privilege works, right? Because, you know, elite education does grant you some privilege if you use it well. I mean, you have to come in the door knowing what to do with it. Like the degree itself doesn't work, right? But like kids like me don't get to check off names on that list, right? We have to do a whole bunch of other things before we even get to fill out that application to gain access to that space, right? And so, I don't know, man, I just think about um, the opportunity that we have once in a space like this. And if we have access to a space like this, which so, so, so few other black folks do, then it's so simple in my mind. Like I have a responsibility to not only do what I love, right? I just happen to love studying this particular history, but I have a responsibility to write these histories into existence that no one has ever documented before. And so, you know, in response to your question, one of the reasons for doing a PhD in this country is because there's so much shit that no one's ever written about. Mm -hmm. You know, in the United States, I think about this sometimes, not only are there thousands of books on the history of slavery, as one example, there are subgenres within that subject that have been written about a hundred times over. So you can read about the experience of black women in the Civil War. You can read about um, the construction of families in slavery. You can read about um, the black soldiers in the Civil War. You can read about, you know, to fast forward, Afro-pessimism as a legacy of slavery. For every subject heading that you have in the United States on, on, on an area about black life, not only do you have scores of books on that subject or publications, but you have subgenres. What's unique about producing scholarship in Canada and Quebec as well, my God, not only do you not have those subjects like filled in so many areas of history, but like there's there's no subgenres. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the content, you know, in the case of the work that I do, so much of the scholarship that exists has been written by white people, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of my responsibility and the joy of being in academia is to produce really useful scholarship that gets left behind for my children and other people that will live, you know, that are here long after I'm gone. And look, the university is um, good for another of other reasons, too. So PhDs are important because for poor single mothers like myself, who just happen to be smart and aggressive, I can get funding to study the shit I want to study and, you know, hopefully get hired out somewhere doing and continuing to produce scholarship and do work that I really love to do. It gives me a really flexible life. I homeschooled my children last year. So that's another reason, you know, access to funding. Um, there, there are lots of reasons for being in the academy. Okay, one other thing. So Audre Lorde has this really famous quote about the master's tools never being able to undo the master's house. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think we have to be careful about literally interpreting that statement, right? Because we could easily fall down that slippery slope that says, well, if you're at McGill, then you know, you're know you just part of this, this corporate structure and you're a player in that structure and you're supporting and upholding and maintaining this like white supremacist heteropatriarchy. But, you know, Sonera Tobani, who's a scholar from BC, a really important, you know, Southeast Asian scholar from, from, from BC, you know, 
has written this book called Exalted Subjects in which she argues the point that by mere acceptance of one's citizenship in this country, mm -hmm. you are upholding and prolonging the relationship of white settler colonialism with the first peoples that were here, right? And so, you know, it's really stopped me in my tracks and it's made me think more broadly about the ways that we are a part of so many systems that we don't believe in. Like I pay taxes and I know that my taxes are going to send some of these boys who enroll in our army here abroad to fight in these wars that I don't believe in. There's all kinds of things that we participate in that we may from a moral standpoint not fully support. Mm -hmm. And it's a much more interesting and useful question, especially for someone that doesn't get to sit in this privileged place to say, well, how can you be subversive in those spaces too? Mm -hmm. And I don't think we ask those questions enough, right? What can we do in those spaces to make those spaces more humane and better for people that look like you and me who move through those spaces as well? Well, I guess I was thinking about, you know, the first point you made about producers as a, of knowledge um, and how we talked about not having enough people um, of color or women included in curriculum. I guess you're right. If we don't have people of color or women writing or participating, how are we going to include those things in the curriculum? Um, in philosophy, we talked about how philosophy of race at McGill specifically wasn't something that was taught widely, um, or even the inclusion of people um, of color or or how philosophy of race isn't even considered real right. philosophy. And that's not, I guess, just necessarily a McGill problem, but mm -hmm. a larger philosophy problem. And how maybe that has something to do with not non-white males participating in the discipline. Um, I guess if you can speak on that a bit. So why does philosophy matter to black and brown people? Mm -hmm. So certainly, you know, I think it's important. I think anyone who steps into philosophy for the first time, I think the most the most stark thing that hit that hits you in your face is how white the space is. And it, you know, it's it's a ridiculously white discipline. I want to say perhaps the whitest of all the disciplines. And we talked a little earlier about how out of 11,000 professional philosophers in the United States, which are the numbers I know, 100 of those um, are black folks and I just checked this recently. I'm going to say 30 of those are black women, 70 are black men. So, you know, in all of the disciplines that we have, you know, um, folks just create theory and scholarship that matters most to them, right? And that that's just the way the world works. It's the way that the university system works. So, you know, folks who have created, you know, black scholarship, you know, over the last 40 years are generally black people who produce knowledge in the area of black studies, for example, in the United States. Most critical race theorists are black and brown people. Um, Derek Bell is black. Kimberly Crenshaw is black. That's just the way that, you know, the production of knowledge works. And I think we don't talk about that enough. But you know, philosophy matters for so many other reasons than its whiteness. It matters, you know, we talked about this over the weekend. Philosophy, and again, is one of those like silent things that we don't talk about. Philosophy undergirds every other discipline that we study. So we have epistemology, I mean, whether we're talking about existentialism or ethics, it undergirds all of the other disciplines. So if you just take something like, um, 
feminist studies or feminist epistemologies. It's really the canon of epistemology that comes out of this classical construction of epistemology from this very classical canon of philosophy that has brought feminist studies forward to what it was. You know, in the early 80s, it's not you know, it's not coincidental that some of the formative conversations and books published in the area of feminist uh, studies were um, books called, uh, where is this one I have on my shelf? Women's Ways of Knowing, right? Mm -hmm. They were concerned with epistemology. Um, you know, some of my earliest, as a philosophy major, you know, as an undergraduate student, some of my earliest memories in Philosophy 101 were thinking about the questions being asked in the class and thinking about how absurd they were. And I didn't connect that to whiteness then, but I did think that, so the question which, you know, matters in epistemology or existentialism, do I exist, right? So that question, do I exist as a trope that falls within existentialism, only matters to people who are not getting their ass beat daily, right? Mm -hmm. Only matters to people who do not experience the, the yoke of black subjugation every single day. It only matters, you know, to people who do not witness black children being killed by police officers every single day. Mm -hmm. It only matters to a certain genre of humans, right? And so I think that because philosophy undergirds all of these other social science disciplines, um, science as well in, in the context of bioethics, um, we, have a, we have a responsibility to ask these questions and then to really think about the questions that ground these disciplines as not being relevant for our lives and our experiences. You know, Charles Mills has this really beautiful line in his book, which is called Existence in Black, I think. Um, he's someone that I've read for, my God, the last 25 years. And he has this line where he says, you know, if your daily existence is largely defined by oppression, by like your forced engagement or intercourse with the world, it's never going to occur to you to doubt your oppressor's existence. Mm -hmm. It's just never going to come into your mind. So this question of do I exist becomes a perk of privilege. He calls it a perk of privilege, a perk of, of social and racial privilege. And I think that's a really important point. You know, so all of this to say, you know, philosophy matters to black people, to people of color, you know, because it does not center the experience of black subordination, which is an everyday experience for so many black people. And the other thing that's really important about philosophy and the reason that we should study it more as folks of color is that, you know, it doesn't regard white supremacy, it doesn't regard settler colonialism as, as, as logics that order the world in a particular way, and they, it doesn't regard you know, white supremacy and settler colonialism as logics that are legitimate sites of inquiry. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, for folks like us who think about these things all of the time, and study them and write about them and research them to step suddenly into a discipline where the very things that foundation our lives experientially and foundation the things that we're studying and writing about and reading about to find those things absolutely absent one and then secondly considered illegitimate 
is shocking. It's a reason we need to be there pushing those issues. You know, a few more things to say about philosophy. So, you know, so philosophy is important for us to study because of the universality pretense and the premise of abstraction. So the two things that philosophy does really good is it creates this illusion of universality. It has to function on that, that all things are the same. And abstraction, which is just a part of that universality pretense, abstraction moves away from the particular. Mm -hmm. And I think about this all the time because I have three black children who I gave birth to right in this bedroom, right? <laughs> like I think about how central the black body is to my life as a mother, to my children's lives, um, you know, to their experiences in schooling. They were very physical and psychological experiences for them that were oppressive. I think about how my son, you know, knows Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and Eric Gardner. He knows these names, right? And he's already made the association that these little slightly older black boys, Tamir Rice is three years older than him, are black boys like him right, who could be taken out. So the body is so central to my life and so much a part of what orders black life mm -hmm. that abstraction is the opposite thing. Like abstraction and philosophy is moving away from the particular. Mm -hmm. It's moving towards a universal, you know, truth. And it's moving away specifically from the body. And I would argue that the black body is absolutely essential, no pun intended, to everything that grounds Africana studies, black studies, critical race theory, the body is absolutely central to those disciplines. Um, but we, we have to be in philosophy more because that's the only way that disciplines shift. They, they shift because of our insistence that they have to shift to meet us, right? Um, so you mentioned having three young children. Could you tell us a little bit about um, the way that you're, you're raising them? and um, how this might tie in with your research about education? You know, my kids are going back to school this fall, and um, homeschooling was great for a lot of reasons. It was hard. I don't want to idealize that shit because it was hard. But one of the things that was really great about being home with my kids is that we had a lot of time to navigate conflict, which between three siblings, happens all the time. Maybe not in everybody's house, but it happens all the time. So we got a lot of time to work out conflict, but we also got a lot of time to talk about who they are and where I come from. Because I think that any black child who steps into school in Quebec, particularly the French system, I think the first thing that slaps a child like upside his or her head is the absolute and stark difference between home and between school, right? That is, if your home sort of looks like this, has stuff that breathes with difference and there's books everywhere and um, there's lots of images of black people everywhere and their mother who always has their hands and their mouth on their little cheeks and face is black. And, you know, we don't say it out loud, but but blackness is something that's really celebrated in this space, although we love a lot of other stuff too. Everything that my children know in this space that has now become normative and familiar in their little bodies is going to feel starkly different than what they experience in a classroom. That place where they're suddenly going to spend the majority of their day or the best parts of their day. So part of my work 
um, is just getting them ready to face that difference and to step in that place knowing that they have a right to be there just like anybody else that's there. So they know how to step in those spaces and sort of sub subvert what you know may be very untrue or a different and more dominant narrative. You know, the thing that I work on the most is, is just loving them because I think that children can only, I mean, we're asking so much of children to be able to do that who are like six and seven and nine that the only way, and look, this is all a great experiment, the only way I think that we can do that is by loving them so much and keeping, keeping them connected to people like my little community here um, who love them and support the kind of parenting that I give to my kids so that when they step out of this space, you know, it may be scary and it may be really different, but it doesn't become crushing. It doesn't become the thing that makes them think, oh, there must be something wrong with me. Like, that's my greatest fear as a mother, that my kids ever leave me and step into another space in this place called Quebec and think, oh, there's something wrong with me. Because mm -hmm. that, I think, is the most destructive thing, right? For kids, for, for McGill students, for college students, it's just absolutely destructive, yeah. you know? What are the resources for young people um, of color at McGill? And I guess what more is needed? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, so I'm working on some of those things now. Um, we need to work together more to insist upon, to insist that the university do certain things. I mean, I guess that's the sort of easiest and hardest answer, right? Um, we need to organize with people that really care about us, like Charmaine Nelson really cares about us. And so part of what we need to do is sit down and plan to, again, propose a Black Canadian Studies program um, from a curriculum standpoint. I've been doing um, work for SEED for the last seven months on a project on implicit bias and hiring practices for the university. And um, the science of implicit bias is something that I've intentionally avoided for the last 20 years because my beliefs have been, if you're a racist, you knew you did it, right? There's no implicit, you know, not knowing, like actions of race and racism are really intentional things. But the gift of doing this research over the last seven months has brought me into um, a different perspective, but it's also, in conjunction with my conversations with students who talk about their classroom experiences made me believe that we need implicit bias training for support staff and educators at McGill. So that's one of the things that I'm really agitating for with one of the deans at, at McGill, just figuring out how, for example, the, the stock multicultural education class that's taught as a mandatory course for education minors can be something different that allows both professors and students to integrate implicit bias training into not only the teacher's pedagogical practices in that space, but also into the curriculum for future educators. Um, so I found that, you know, starting with implicit bias can be a really effective way to get to the same end goal, which is white supremacy without beginning with white supremacy. So um, curriculum um, training for professors um, who need to learn how to 
shut down stupid cultural and racial conversations that are offensive and harmful to students of color in class. Um, mental health support. So the Office of Student Disabilities was an office that was created not specifically to deal with students that have mental health challenges. That shifted tremendously since its inception because over 30% of the students that they serve out of their entire pie are students who have mental illness. Um, what we do know is that black students have very different needs pertaining to mental illness. And so let me just say that one of the things that we need is better support on campus in that office, which is really like the, the place that students go. It's still that touchstone, that, that, that like pinpoint for um, supporting students who have mental illness issues and depression. We need um, faces visibly in that office. We need therapists and we need um, referrals to psychologists and psychiatrists on and off campus who have um, culturally sensitive training or are just black and brown. And I and other students need to insist that we have individual needs when it comes to our mental health illness that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. It's like that universality thing, like you can't just sweep us into this office and expect, um, expect that it's a good fit because it's not a good fit. Look, my belief, and I'm only one person, and I don't know how this can shift, but in my mind, there's an absolute urgency for every black and brown PhD and graduate student to mentor undergraduates. It just has to happen, because there are no professors there, right? Like there's, like, you know, for example, two black profs or three black profs. Um, so one of the things that I've just decided to do is, when I see students who I know are struggling, who are black girls or boys, I've just decided to reach out and say, hey, you know, I've just noticed, I just want you to know I'm here if you need anything. When I was a philosophy major, one of the things that made doing philosophy so great at a historically black institution is that I got to meet all of these people who were like superstars in the area of like Africana philosophy really quick because um, we're just a small group of people, right? And so I was mentored really well as a philosophy major. And as a result, have had these lifelong mentors like Charles Mills for the last 20 years. Um, mentorship makes a difference and McGill Students like myself don't know how to do it good enough, and we have to get better at reaching back and, and just checking in. Um, one of the things that I had to reckon with was, you know, for the last two or three years, like I've gone to different events on campus and I would bump into the same faces, and I would just look at a student and I would just think, oh, this person's having a hard time, but I wouldn't say anything, right? And now I just always say something. So we just need better mentorship networks uh, on campus for, for racialized uh, students uh, at the undergraduate level. We just do. And that's the responsibility of graduate students, man. We have that responsibility. But, you know, in all fairness, many of us are not doing well either. 